if you restore arousal, how can you see if there is also an awareness restoration or not? And, and this, we really believe since the beginning that. And the first thing we show is that if you perform deep brain stimulation on the centurion thalamus, when the monkey is completely anesthetized, you will restore. We all know this uh, paper by uh, Nicolas Schiff and Ali Reza in Nature 2007. I remember I was doing my postdoc at MGH at that time. I was amazed by this paper. Uh, less known is uh, a paper by uh, Coadon, which is a neurosurgeon in Bordeaux. And uh, I think there's also other works in Germany, uh, previous work in Germany, uh, with acute stimulation, the OR, showing the capability of uh, of uh, really inducing consciousness or shifting consciousness states. What is, what is new, I think, uh, here uh, is that, uh, I would say, two, two, two aspects. First, Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello everyone, this is Andy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started with announcing today's guest, I wanted to bring up two small things. First, I wanted to express my sincere thanks to Allah Taha, who is a PhD student in biomedical engineering at Western University in Canada. Allah has reached out to me to offer help editing the recordings and has done a phenomenal job to produce the last few episodes. This is super helpful and allows me to keep interviewing experts in the field and to run this podcast, which of course is entirely non-profit and hence essentially a hobby of mine. Allah, thank you. In case you are listening to this and want to become a part of the project in a similar fashion, please let me know. We are always looking for help and to connect the young brains of the upcoming generation with this podcast. Second, I wanted to mention that since a while a new framework has been born as a sister project to this podcast, namely three trainees from my lab, Barbara Holunder, Garance Meyer and Patricia Svarova have started to organize a talk series under the same name. The talks are organized on Zoom and for free and feature two speakers each month. They have had tremendous talks already by experts such as Phil Starr, Verle Wissowanderwalle, Ludwig Srinzo, Mike Fox, Shanzi Dicki, Hagei Bergman, Kara Johnson, Roxanne Lofridi, Marie Kruger, and others. All recordings are available online at stimulatingbrains.org. To make this talk series special, Barbara Garance and Patricia have come up with a new concept. Each month, they pair a senior speaker with a junior speaker to give talks on a similar topic, followed by a joint discussion. Also, the senior speakers devote 10 minutes of their time to talk about how they got where they are now. So if you ever wondered why Mark Richardson ultimately moved full circle from a swamp on a hill to a swamp in Massachusetts, who were the mentors that influenced Phil Starr most and why or which was Mike Fox's path to brain circuit therapeutics, tune in and take a look at this talk series. Barbara and Patricia are bright PhD students in my lab in Berlin, and you can follow them on Twitter under B underscore Hollander and Tracy Svarar.
Allah Taha is also on Twitter under Allah underscore T underscore. Garros Meyer, who is a postdoc in my lab in Boston, is not on Twitter, but certainly also open for contact. But now to today's episode. I think we have a tremendous topic in front of us. Wait for it. Consciousness. Recently, Jordi has rejoined my lab here in Boston after doing a tour de force five-year PhD at Neurospin in Paris and after a quick stop in Andres Lozano's lab in Toronto. He did his PhD under the supervision of Bahir Jaraya, who is a functional neurosurgeon at Foch Hospital in Paris, a professor of medicine at Paris-Saclay-Versailles-Saint-Quay University and a principal investigator at Neurospin in Paris. Together, they recently published a paper in Science Advances, in which they awoke non-human primates that were under anesthesia using DBS. Their study has it all. Invasive neuromodulation, an animal model, fMRI, EEG, and dynamic resting state fMRI analysis. Together with their joint mentor Stanislas Dehaene, who leads Neurospin and is famous for his global workspace theory, they could demonstrate that it is not only possible to increase arousal, but also consciousness, using DBS. I think this is a truly outstanding effort and a Herculanean PhD thesis and paper. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did, and thanks for tuning in. Again, Stimulating Brains. So, Behir, uh, it's it's a great honor to um, have you on the podcast. Uh, at this point, I already will have introduced you formally. Um, so we can start right off with uh, with questions. And uh, to break the ice, usually before we get into the science, um, I always ask about your free time. So what do you do when not involved in science? Any hobbies or things you like to do? Well, I'm, uh, I actually uh, love opera. So I love, uh, I'm not singing myself, but uh, when I was young, I discovered uh, opera really accidentally. Yeah? I was a teenager listening to the French TV broadcasting and there was a magic flute, which is really very good even for kids and teenagers, uh, the famous Mozart opera. And it was a revelation. I mean, I remember I, uh, we had, uh, I have other friends coming here and I stopped uh, playing with the other friends and went listening to this opera. So it was odd for them, but still. Uh, and later on, again, accidentally, I uh, discovered uh, uh, Rheingold. Rheingold, the first opera of the uh, famous tetralogy of Wagner. Uh, and yeah. I became a big fan of Wagner's opera, I must say. So, uh, uh, again, completely by chance. Uh, of course, I uh, appreciate also other forms of arts, uh, uh, paintings, impressionists, modern uh, sculptures, uh, uh, seeing ballet from Tchaikovsky, uh, and of course, uh, musicals. I, I, when I was in the US, I, I loved uh, to go to Broadway. Uh, uh, Broadway musical is uh, maybe the, the modern form form of opera, let's say. Yeah. So uh, I, I enjoy it much. And I, I would add now that parenting is also a new uh, hobby. Uh. Of course. Yeah, I can, that takes a lot of time. So, so I was about to ask, how often do you get to go to the opera? 
is it multiple times a year or, or every month even or uh, well it used to be at least every month uh, yeah. but i must say that recently uh, parenting activity uh, took over so uh, not to mention the covid of course sure. uh, but well i keep hope that uh, it will go uh, later on back to the previous great. <laughs> and and you live in the perfect city for art i was i would say with paris so that's that's amazing so what what sparked your interest to get into functional neurosurgery why why that field well um i must say andy that uh even uh, i could even question myself why i went to medicine basically mm -hmm. uh, because at high school i was uh, i really loved mathematics uh it was really my favorite uh, uh my favorite class my favorite team uh, but also biology and uh, i i had some hesitation between uh, medical school and engineering school somehow uh so for me the ideal scheme was to combine both basically to do to do something uh, related to to medicine to to help also people suffering or discover new avenues in the disease field uh, and i found that functional neurosurgery was very well suited for that uh, yeah. i remember uh, very precisely my first year of the medical school i started medical school in lyon 1992 and i read uh, a paper at that time um, about the you know the swedish team at lund uh, Lindvall, who pioneered the graft actually the grafting in parkinson's yeah. disease uh, for me it was really really amazing to 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 hear the, the about the possibility of neurografting uh, dopaminergic cells coming from fetal tissues into the brain of parkinson's patients And uh, somehow it was like, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> Great. Uh, like the idea of rewiring the brain was so fascinating uh, for me. Yeah? Um, and uh, well, uh, I, I must say uh, that a uh, uh, few, few domains in medicine also are so transversal, interdisciplinary. Uh, I love that. Like in functional neurosurgery, uh, uh, it's well, we call it functional neurosurgery, but it's not. I mean, you're directly working with colleagues, surgeon, neurologist, or scientist, or physiologist, yeah. uh, MDs, PhDs, uh, the PD nurse. Uh, uh, that's for me. Uh, I, I love that actually. For me, it's. I hope it's the future of medicine. You know. Uh, The transdisciplinarity you mean to work together with, um, yeah, maybe even a f f field uh, of neuromodulation that that um, involves uh, many specialties, right? Yeah, that's that's great. So, so um, we heard a bit already this, uh, uh, you know, grafting um, fascination, and I love it when 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 you sometimes have this aha moment and think this is what I want to do. Um, I think I had that when I saw the first tractography uh, image as well uh, myself at oh. some point in small but um, it didn't put my entire career in there but but I, I really loved this idea too and I remember this image and so so maybe going in, into that um, then in your career who were key mentors or like turning points where you think this was an amazing experience or this was a you know the best mentor or the, the most important person in your professional career 
Yeah, there, there were uh, some several key people actually. Uh, my first great mentor, uh, for for sure, was uh, Michel Jouvet. Michel Jouvet was really one of the greatest neuroscientists of his time, at least in France and, and Europe. Uh, you probably know that uh, in the 50s, 60s, he really was the first to link REM sleep to dreams. And uh, he, uh, he could uh, destroy selectively locus cerulus in, uh, in cats and, uh, and see the cats dreaming, basically, because they were he interpreted that as looking after a mouse. Uh, could the cat dream of that? Great. Maybe. Uh, and actually, he was uh, a professor at Lyon, a professor of what we call experimental medicine, which well, today we say maybe translational medicine. And it was his last year uh, before he retired, basically. So I was really very fortunate to, to be in his class. Uh, and, uh, and I discovered that Michel Jouvet uh, first was uh, started his career as a neurosurgeon. Oh, <laughs> great. Is, uh, yes, uh, uh, nobody knows about it, but uh, uh, in, in, uh, maybe he was not in the right uh, time for neurosurgery because at that time, Neurosurgery was still not really not uh, on the uh, uh, as today as developed as even today or even twenty years ago. Uh, however, he uh, he really gives you very with his big charisma the, the love of neuroscience, obviously, uh, and uh, and he also uh, talked about this grafting in the Loon team, uh, etc. And. Uh, uh, he refers also to Claude Bernard, uh, so the, uh, the inventor of experimental medicine. Uh, so this is this influenced me a lot when I was an uh, undergrad, or was the first years of, of medicine in Lyon. Uh, then I started my residency in Paris. I moved to Paris uh, from Lyon for the residency. Uh, and I was very happy and fortunate to meet with Stéphane Palfi. Uh, he's a functional neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist at uh, Henri Mondeur Hospital. Uh, for sure, he played an important role in my career uh, because he was the first uh, to show me uh, a concrete way of conducting both uh, neurosurgery and neuroscience and going from the bed to the bench. Uh, and he was, of course, doing uh, functional surgery. Uh, he also uh, gave me the opportunity to go to, to the lab to do a master and then a PhD under his supervision in the laboratory of Philippe Entraille at uh, CEA. Uh, so he initiated me to non-human primate models as well of uh, neurogenerative diseases. So we did a lot of MPTP modeling, monkeys, and we developed together with a, a UK biotech called uh, Oxobiomedica, uh, a gene therapy uh, for, for Parkinson's disease that eventually later on went for clinical trials. So, so that was for me really an important uh, moment in my life. Um, I must also acknowledge that people like uh, Yves Gide, a famous neurologist at saint yeah. uh, uh I did a rotation in his uh, department because I knew that they will uh, do my career in neuromodulation and for me it was important as a neurosurgeon to also to spend at least a rotation where you're away from the OR but really uh, having the opportunity to understand what is this disease and this uh, fascinating disease I mean. and with Yves Gide, I think you 
you, it, he gives you, again, with his charisma and his uh, uh, sense of leadership, uh, I mean, anybody that will meet with him will fall in love of Parkinson's disease for sure. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I've been trying to get him on the podcast, actually, because Marwan Hari's mentioned I should try, but uh, didn't get a reply. So um haven't oh. haven't managed yet <laughs> but uh, no, I must, please, that, yes <laughs> that must have been that must have been a, a great uh, fellowship so that was a rotation only or did you spend multiple years with him or yes i i, I did a rotation uh, mm. in his uh, uh, department uh and then among also my mentors i would add uh, wim van daffel wim van daffel uh is uh, uh, a scientist not necessarily very known in the neuromediation field but he's a, a pioneer in cognitive neuroscience and in fMRI especially yeah. and that FMRI. was in Boston right that was when you went to the Martino Center so maybe we can highlight that there was not Paris anymore but um how how long were you in Boston so uh, I spent one year in Boston but uh, it was a year uh, days and nights basically it's, yeah so <laughs> two years, two years. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes joke yeah. uh, of it uh, because in Wim Duffel's lab actually we had the opportunity to scan overnight mm -hmm. to use the scanner so the it's it's this uh, really uh, the efficiency of the US system where the scanners are turning almost 24 hours a day. I tried to with these colleagues here in Neurospace, but it's hard to do. Uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it was really amazing because uh, uh, I, I, well, it was a switch for me, like he was not doing any Parkinson's or, or stuff like that, but uh, he developed uh, techniques and technology that eventually later on influenced me a lot in my career. Uh, when I was back to to France, basically. So let's let's speak about that. I think after coming back from um, Martino Center, so from Boston um, to Paris, uh, as I understood, you founded the Neuromodulation Lab at Neurospin, um, with which and Neurospin, for, you know, is is very famous. Needs no introduction, but is I think the the center with the most MRIs in France. I could probably imagine. Um, so a bit like the Martino Center in. In the US or, or Leipzig in Germany or so, um, with the mission to yes. evaluate brain modulation by um so so your lab's mission was to um evaluate brain modulation by pharmacological agents or electrical neurostimulation. Can you sum up your lab in a nutshell, like um executive summary? What do you do in, in the lab? So this is a, uh, a lab I had really uh, the opportunity to mount back from Martina Center in Boston. In fact, uh, I was fortunate to, to, to be candidate and laureate of a, a French program for young investigators uh, from Atip Avenir called from INSERM. So they give you this opportunity with some funding and some few years. Uh, and eventually either the lab succeeds and go for the long term or, or not. Uh, so I found it great, actually. It's, it's a risk, of course, but I, I love also taking some risk. I think it's important, especially when you are young, you, you have this opportunity to do, to do that. Uh, so for me, it was uh, something I learned in Boston from, from uh, uh, in Wim Wonderful's lab. Uh, how can we do fMRI in non-human primates awake or anesthetized? And the idea was to first to study consciousness because when I was back to uh, Neurospin, uh, I made an amazing uh, 
actually an amazing collaboration with uh, somebody who's uh, very famous in the cognitive neuroscience field, uh, Stanislas Dehaene. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was uh, the beginning of uh, one of the most fruitful collaboration I had in my life over the last 10 years. And, uh, right. uh, and I hope uh, it will be also the case for the upcoming years. Uh, so with uh, Stanislas, we, we really decided that these models uh, unique in, in, in uh, primates and the ability of to doing neuromodulation combined with functional MRI eventually could reveal some new secrets about uh, consciousness. So how, how the brain, how can the brain produce the consciousness phenomena? This is a fascinating field, huh? my opinion. Very hot topic in neuroscience now. Of course, yeah. As we know, uh, and even in the neuromodulation field, many, many, many uh, teams are interested in uh, applying neuromodulation for people, patients with chronic disorders of consciousness. So we really, uh, the focus of the lab now is to study consciousness, to dissect consciousness mechanism, and to apply advanced uh, functional MRI technologies uh, with tasks for the resting states and advanced both technologies and analysis techniques uh, to dissect the neural mechanism of consciousness. And uh, this gives you not only a theoretic, theoretical dissection of uh, how the brain produces consciousness and modulate consciousness, but also why anesthesia does suppress your consciousness actually. Why by uh, uh, binding to GABA, or receptors or uh, uh, anti-glutamate uh, effect in case of ketamine or mixed receptor bindings. Why do you produce this phenomena? I mean, it's, it's when you think about it, it's, it's, it's incredible. Huh? It's a very recent discovery in the whole history of, uh, <laughs> of the, the humanity uh, in a reversible manner, of course. Uh, so, so that uh, we could actually have some new insights into uh, how anesthesia uh, affect the brain. Uh, and, and starting from that, we, we use this model that was developed by Eileen Urich, actually, she's an anesthesiologist uh, herself. Uh, and uh, she's also my wife, I should uh, say it. Okay. <laughs> she became my wife after finishing her PhD. And uh, we went uh, to ask the question, uh, could we uh, reverse anesthesia effects once we studied a lot how anesthesia could uh, suppress your consciousness could you really reverse this phenomenon and uh, that was the opportunity uh, of uh, uh, to make a phd for Jordi Tasri yes. <laughs> was uh, my grad student uh, and uh, it was an amazing uh, adventure or several year adventure to uh, could we really reverse that uh, by modulating specific nuclei uh, of uh, the brain uh, of the thalamus, for example, and uh, by doing so, are we reversing uh, all the aspects of consciousness? Because consciousness is a very, uh, uh, very uh, polysemic word, so we can apply it for the arousal. We can apply it for the higher level of consciousness, the awareness the perception or even the uh, metacognition. Uh, and it's very difficult actually uh, to do in that field, either with patients or, and, and even more with animals. If you restore arousal, how can you see if there is also an awareness 
restoration of Mahkam. And this, we really believe since the beginning that uh, imaging could be a key tool uh, for that. Amazing. And I think this is, of course, the main topic also we wanted to talk about, which culminated in uh, Jordi Tassari's and, and like your um, Science Advances publication um, recently, um, where I think it's really a tour de force. It um, also, as you said, took around five years, at least, um, I think, this work, or at least uh, his PhD. Um, Jordi is with us today as well. So we can maybe also Wait. ask him to summarize a bit how you know what what the effort was um you know what he what what the project involved i think um in you know just to excite the listeners already so in a way you guys managed to restore consciousness with deep brain simulation to the thalamus in monkeys and macaques so um and you used you know multiple mri techniques and um uh, invasive neuromodulation so I think this is really a, um, and these were anesthetized monkeys. So it, it was not a, like, it was not a um, lesion-based um, disorder of consciousness, but, but anesthesia. So under anesthesia with DBS, monkeys woke up again, um, which I think is very, very helpful and very interesting as a, um, as a concept. So maybe, Troy, do you want to um, briefly mention your activities, uh, like in, during your PhD with Bahir, and then um, together we can talk more about the study. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. So we lead a comprehensive study uh, in non-human primates when we basically uh, study behavior of the, of the animals, e.g. Uh, result, and then we move to fMRI. Um, so we had two groups of monkeys. The first one was completely awake as a reference, and the second group was deeply anesthetized with propofol, is a model developed by Linering, so finely tuned anesthesia at a deep level. And we perform or not different simulation with uh, different control, both on the amplitude, so low or high amplitude, but also in terms of localization in the central meridian thalamus, which is an intralaminar nuclei, or in the ventral lateral thalamus, which is not. And the first thing we show uh, is that if you perform deep brain simulation on the central meridian thalamus, when the monkey is completely anesthetized, you will restore aerosol. So what does it mean? It means that the monkey literally woke up. He will have spontaneous movements. He will have self-breathing. Um, he will open his eyes, which is absolutely not the case when you are stimulating at lower amplitude on the same contact, or if you are stimulating in the ventral thalamus. But it just gave us uh, an understanding of how deep brain stimulation can restore arousal, but still not awareness. So we also perform EEG um, uh, during this uh, same condition. And what we show is that the normal delta power significantly uh, decrease under the same conditions that restore uh, arousal in the monkey. And in the opposite, normalized theta and alpha power increase when you perform deep brain stimulation. So overall, the spectral distribution uh, of frequency and entropy increase during high amplitude uh, central million thalamus. But again, we still have no idea about uh, the content of consciousness, um, so the awareness. So we then move to fMRI this time, and the first idea was just to look at the DBS induced activity. So when you simply switch on and off the stimulation, uh, what kind of brain activity would you have? So we mapped the whole brain uh, fMRI response. And what we saw is that with um, low uh, amplitude stimulation center on the central thalamus, you will activate localized sectors, the prefrontal, parietal, and anterior cingulate cortex, for instance, as well as the midbrain and the cerebellum. 
Now, if you perform the same stimulation, but in the control, in the ventrolateral thalamus, the activation will be much more restricted to the occipital cortex. Now, if you look at the only conditions that awake the monkey, so the high amplitude centrobagnum stimulation, we saw an amazing broadcast effect in prefrontal, parietal, anterior and posterior cingulate cortex, but also insular cortex, triatum, hypothalamus, or even uh, midbrain and cerebellum. And if you do the same stimulation at high amplitude, but now in the control in ventral lateral thalamus, it leads to more restricted activation only in the prefrontal, parietal, and temporal uh, cortex. So among all the different DBS targets and level, only high amplitude stimulation center on central region thalamus activates these broad cortical and subcortical networks, which include especially the cingulate cortex. Wow, this is this is really amazing. So you had you controlled for frequency or like amplitude, and you controlled for the target. You did this, I think, in two monkeys. Is that true? Absolutely. So we had yeah. three monkeys for the three awake monkeys. pattern, and two monkeys were implanted with deep brain stimulation. Interesting. So we then moved to resting states, um, and we look at how the spontaneous fluctuation of the brain will look like when you perform against this uh, um, stimulation. And what we saw is that when you are under anesthesia, all the long wedge uh, cortical uh, correlation will be vanished compared to awake. So the question was to say, can we restore this long wedge bilateral uh, connection? And during low amplitude stimulation, both on central median or ventral thalamus, we barely restore um, some part of it, especially in the prefrontal cortex, but not the long wedge cortical connection from prefrontal to cingulate cortex, for instance. But interestingly, when we perform um, high amplitude stimulation on central thalamus, so again, the same that we store uh, our results, the same that increase uh, the, the mean uh, spectral entropy uh, awareness, mm -hmm. we saw that we restore uh, an awake-like pattern in the global neuronal workspace keynote. So the global neural workspace is a theory of consciousness developed by Jean-Pierre Chandler and Stanislav Dehaene, and we identify different uh, uh, key areas in, in the cortex that are probably responsible uh, for consciousness. And we, we perform this uh, analysis of functional correlation. We show that only this uh, kind of stimulation in the central thalamus restores the long range uh, cortical functional connectivity. Super cool. But, so, so this even ties in um, the global workspace theory that, um, as, as Bahir mentioned, Stanislas Dehen, among others, um, developed so in, in the, at the center of Neurospin. Um, you, you, you were not done. You wanted to, sorry, did I interrupt you? Sure, because I think what we demonstrate here is just uh, the mechanism of um, deep brain stimulation, uh, sometimes instrument thalamus. But uh, from all the experiments, we still have no idea about the, the content of consciousness, what is really the, the, the awareness. And to that, it has been demonstrated that there is two biomarkers of consciousness when you use neuroimaging. And the first one is the dynamic resting state. So if you um, use an unsupervised algorithm to segregate your fMRI signal into different uh, patterns, you will be able to identify, let's say, seven brain patterns that occur in your brain and how your brain is moving from one to another during 10 minutes of resting states. And what have been demonstrated both in non-human primates and in patients with chronic disorders of consciousness is that when uh, you are completely conscious 
you have a rich set of brain states completely independent to the structure. So if you order this brain state according to the similarity with the anatomy, you will see that there is absolutely no correlation. And what we've done here is that we uh, perform the exact same experimental um, condition, so awake, anesthetized, and anesthetized plus different simulation. And we saw that only centromedial thalamus uh, different simulation at high amplitude was able to completely restore a rich repertoire of brain states, which was not just the case when you are completely anesthetized. So when you are anesthetized, your brain is shaped to brain state number seven, which is the one which is uh, really tied by the anatomy. So your brain is not flexible enough to jump from one state to another, but you will remain in one uh, specific pattern. And interestingly, it was absolutely not the case with the other different simulation conditions. So again, the same condition restore uh, rich and dependent of the anatomy uh, pattern in dynamic resting state. And just to finish, I know some of you could be uh, um, a bit annoyed by resting state and how we can denoise this kind of data. So we move to another paradigm, which is an event-related task, um, an, a notebook paradigm we call local global. And again, it has been demonstrated both in patient and in animals models that um, the first level of deviance, so just the tone would break the rule, um, you can process that even if you are non-conscious, which is what we call the local deviant. So you will have something like BBBBAP. But now if you make something much more complex, which would be the global deviance, when the entire sequence violates the rule, so you will have BBBBBAP, BBBBBAP, BBBBBAP. This is much more complex to process. And only if you are conscious, you will be able to have this ability to detect this global deviance. And what we show is that uh, if you perform, again, the same centromedial thalamus different stimulation, you will restore these broadcasting effects in prefrontal, parietal, and cingulate cortex when the global deviance occur, which is not the case when you are anesthetized because all this effect is completely vanished. And so for us, it was really two different orthogonal way of demonstrating a signature of consciousness that is restored by different simulation, sometimes the centromedial thalamus, which is what not the case when you perform the control side of the control thalamus. Amazing. So, so, so really um, a very like tour de force uh, PhD and paper, all in one paper. Um, they hear, thanks for the summary, Jordi, but here, did, did Jordi miss anything or <laughs> would you, what would you add? No, just to, to give uh, more context, I think Jordi explained very well uh, the paper huh, and the experiment there. Uh, in, uh, everybody in the normalization field knows that uh, uh, the idea of stimulating the thalamus to restore uh, consciousness is not completely new, actually. Huh? Sure. Uh, we all know this uh, paper by uh, Nicolas Schiff and Ali Reza in Nature 2007. I remember I, I was doing my postdoc at MGH at that time. I was amazed by this paper. Uh, less known is uh, a paper by uh, Coadon, which is a neurosurgeon in Bordeaux. And uh, I think there's also other works in Germany, uh, previous work in Germany, uh, with acute stimulation, the OR, showing the capability of uh, of uh, really inducing consciousness or shifting consciousness states. Uh, what is what is new, I think, uh, here uh, is that I would say two 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 aspects. First, uh, so far, uh, 
and also in, in, in the monkeys, awakening monkeys with thalamic stimulation was also reported by the Yuri Salman group, uh, Red and Bow Paper Neuron, and also the group of Emory Brown and uh, um, uh, the MIT group, uh, Earl Miller, Earl Miller and uh, uh, so, and, and uh, Emory Brown. Uh, I think the novelty here is to measure to measure consciousness precisely yeah. and not to look only on uh, arousal effects uh, the awakening effects uh, and and this was really difficult to say i mean how could we really measure awareness uh, in these animals it's very hard to interact with uh, and this Jordi explained very well this signature that we we spent already a while on uh, developing them with the Stanislas with Lionel Nakash, and uh, uh, sometimes first in patient, then in the monkey, sometimes first in the monkey, then in patients. Uh, that, that's the virtue of translational medicine, the back and yeah. forth. Uh, I think this is this is something very interesting that, uh, uh, in my opinion, even for future clinical trials involving neuromodulation, whatever the, the technique of neuromodulation in, uh, in disorders of consciousness or or why not even in acute consciousness disorder and coma, uh, should really uh, involve these measures, these biomarkers of uh, consciousness. Huh? Because it's the only way to uh, to move on and, and to prove how much are you uh, inducing in terms of uh, uh, which level of consciousness. And the second aspect, I think, which can be generalized even more, is that uh, functional imaging can be uh, a key tool to uh, distinguish your settings, your electrical parameters. I mean, uh, what I personally think is that uh, eventually functional MRI, functional imaging, it could be also EG, HD, G, et cetera, could probably play uh, an increasing role in the neuromediation field. Like uh, the, this publication uh, we had, uh, in uh, science advances, clearly uh, you could see that the fMRI maps vary a lot according not only to the location of stimulation within the thalamus, but also to the setting uh, and, and the cortical aspect of it. Uh, we know now very well that uh, cortical modulation is very important. Or it's it's deep, but a lot of uh, cortical effects there. Uh, functional imaging could eventually be uh, a way to better understand the mechanisms of DBS and Parkinson's. Well, this uh, uh, Andres Lozano and his group, and also uh, Robert Jesh in uh, yep. um, uh, also practice pioneering pioneering work toward that. Uh, but we should probably profit from uh, uh, the advancements in technologies of fMRI and in analysis, of course, of fMRI, yeah. both resting state and task. And why not guiding even better uh, modulation, modulation settings uh, in 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 our already uh, current applications, movement disorders. Uh, it may be even more critical for uh, psychiatric disorders, of course. Yeah. You know very well, uh, <laughs> I would not convince you, Andy, about the importance of imaging <laughs> in the radiation field. You're sure. a pioneer in that. Uh, uh, thank you again also for the collaboration we had so far <laughs> on lead DBS and adapting lead DBS uh, first uh, as a yeah, first time I to clinical models. Yeah, you should maybe yeah. mention that, that you guys did, you were the first to use LeadGPS in a non-human 
So, so Jordi, you, you you visited us in 2016 at Charity when we gave the first LeakyBS workshop, and um, you were interested in applying that into like um, localizing electrodes in in macaques. Is that yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we discovered this amazing tool, LeakyBS, that you guys developed, and uh, we were a bit annoyed to say that uh, it was not yet working for non-human primates. So the idea was to extend that um, for macaques monkey. And so thanks to uh, this collaboration efforts, we bring this uh, extension uh, when we have now the atlases from non-human primates. And thanks to that, we were able to localize the electrons that we implanted in this uh, monkey for consciousness disorders. That's really, really great. Um, and, and it is now, uh, I think, um, openly available. Um, people can use LeetVS for primates, thanks to you guys. And um, first publication there, I think, um, just as a side note, there have there was one group that used it in a um, swine model without any of my interaction. I, I didn't even, you know, um, I just saw the paper. Wow. <laughs> so, so, um, and I we 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 ourselves published um, uh, rats, uh, you know, a rat version of LeetVS and used it in, in rodents. Um, but that was all after your primate model. So you were certainly the pioneers of adapting uh, LeetVS to. To other um, animal models, which is which is amazing and was it, you know, great. Thanks to yeah. you. Thanks to you. Thanks no, no, to I, again. I, I didn't do much. No, no, no. I, um, really great. Yeah. And Jordi played an important role. So, so I guess for the second point, what you're saying, and I totally agree. You know, we have a causal, you know, impact with the stimulation on the brain. We can now measure that with fMRI beautifully because we really know we induce some stimulus. And then we see the response, right? We can contrast location. We can contrast di different simulation um, frequencies and so on. So I, I totally agree with you there. For the first point um, that you mentioned, which was that I think, um, I, I guess it was quite obvious to you guys that the monkeys would be more aroused, right? They would move, they would open their eyes and so on. That's easy to, to diagnose, but Sounds like you guys were really into consciousness, right? About, you know, are they conscious or not? That was the key or the most important thing for you. Um, so, and, and, and then you think there, that's where imaging really helped because you essentially can't talk to them. You know, it's hard to, to measure consciousness there. I, I would maybe love to dive into that a little bit more, but even starting with arousal. So like when you, put the stimulation on at the right frequency at the centromedian nucleus. Um, I think, Jordi, I asked you before, the monkeys would eventually would have left their cage or like they would have gone away if you wouldn't like stop them, right? They were so awake in a way or aroused that they would move and, and you know, um, look around. Is that true? Can you describe that or paint a picture of it that we really see how big this effect was of DBS? Because they were under anesthesia, right? I think that is very helpful to hear how much the effect really, how strong the effect really was on arousal only. Yes, so um, again, the monkey was completely anesthetized at a deep level uh, with propofol. And when we turn on the stimulation with the right parameters, uh, we saw amazing effects. So as you mentioned, um, you have to picture a monkey that tried to escape, um, was completely uh, um um, sleeping, and then all of a sudden, he opened his eye. He has broken their reflex, for instance. He will try to understand the surrounding world, uh, have spontaneous movement, and even on the physiology of the animal. You can see that when you are anesthetized, the mean heart rate will decrease or the body temperature will decrease, and it regain uh, normal values. 
So um, if, if you're not turning off the stimulation or if the monkey is not uh, paralyzed, uh, it could definitely turn to something uh, uh, potentially dangerous if, if you are just sure. next to him. Um, so yeah, definitely you have to picture someone that uh, woke up and, and uh, restore complaint ability to interact uh, with the, with the surrounding world. And I think that is so important because, you know, I think many of, uh, you know, you could imagine that the DBS effect had something that you could measure in the signal or so, but no, you really saw it, right? The, the monkey would essentially wake up. But now I guess for the lay person like me, I'm not, you know, I'm familiar with, with um, consciousness that well, it would, would, could it be, let's say, like sleepwalking? Like, um, you know, sometimes we, we do move during sleep, but we're not awake, we're not um, conscious. Um, so was it a bit like that? Could it have been like that? And then for that, you needed to prove in different forms, for example, with the stimuli, the bip, 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 bop uh, idea, and with imaging that, no, it was really consciousness, or like at least the measures of consciousness were heightened under DBS. Is that a bit how we could picture it? It's it's a good uh, that you use the sleepwalking. <laughs> so it's, it's a way, maybe a metaphor to dissociate the two dimensions of consciousness, meaning the the arousal, the vigilance, which is yeah. very easy to see. Uh, like uh, if you you look after an accident and you see some somebody in his car, you say, well, is he, is he conscious? It means is he waking? Is he uh, opening his eyes spontaneously? for example, uh, but then that's not enough. I mean, arousal, you can have arousal or vigilance without any perception of external world. That's, yeah. that's something important to, uh, that, that now we, we, we have very good examples of it. If you take chronic disorders of consciousness, for example, so uh, these are patients we see a lot in neurosurgery after severe head injury, for example, or severe stroke, and some of these patients, uh, thanks to the current medicine and ICU, can survive, actually. But yeah. uh, some of them will even uh, open their eyes, for example, 10 days, two weeks, uh, when sedation is not there, and uh, spontaneously, eyes are opened. But we know very well that it doesn't mean they are conscious, because they may be vegetative. Yeah. So they open eyes in the morning, they have a cycle, uh, but actually there's it's really impossible to have any communication between the external world and those patients. And we know that some of them actually have more than that and start to communicate, to perceive the external world. And we call them uh, uh, minimal conscious state, yeah. MCS. Uh, and, and the difference is important because uh, and not easy to, to make clinically. Yeah. Huh? Uh, uh, well, uh, colleagues from Liège, like Steve Lorez uh, uh, or, or uh, Adrien Owen, who was in uh, Cambridge, uh, quantified that and found that, like uh, with clinical examination, we we are mistaken in forty percent of patients because of the limitation oh. of, the, uh, of the the clinical examination for uh, consciousness. Uh, when you go to the department of neurosurgery, or people knows very well the Glasgow Coma Scale, for example. Uh, yeah. uh, this is the universal. Uh, uh, scale uh, for uh, for uh, let's say loss of consciousness. That's it's a very good scale for the acute uh, 
management uh, of yeah. coma, but it's very bad scale for the chronic uh, disorders of consciousness, uh, of course. And uh, what we mm. would we should now uh, teach more and more to our residents and uh, etc. Who and, and young uh, colleagues is that uh, uh, after the acute period of a coma, the Glasgow coma scale has not uh, don't have any sense anymore. Uh, you need to move to specific scales called, for example, uh, uh, CRSR, so uh, Coma Recovery Scale, uh, revised. Uh, there are other scales, but CRSR is one of the most translated in all languages. These are scales that will take you more time to realize. Huh? You need uh, almost between half an hour and one hour, whereas Glasgow Coma Scale in two minutes, you can, you can easily do it. But they are much more appropriate to try to to better evaluate uh, uh, the recovery from, from coma. But even CRSR is not enough. And there are uh, patients who are in between, between uh, vegetative also now, although now we, we say more and more UWS, uh, so unresponsive uh, recumbent syndrome, uh, versus uh, minimal cancer state. And this difference can be important. It, it may be, maybe it's important uh, to select the patients for neuromodulation eventually, yeah. maybe in terms of prognosis eventually. Uh, so, so there are different different consequences. Huh? But this again uh, gives you clear uh, from the clinical experience clinical clear difference between arousal vigilance, so the the first level of consciousness, which is clinically diagnosed by open eyes or not, basically, yeah. and going more than that, perceive the external world uh, and eventually communicate with, uh, with the external world. Uh, so having some kind of awareness, even if it's an intermediate uh, uh, sort of uh, part of the awareness. And clearly, uh, it's important for neuromodulation to restore both aspects of consciousness, especially awareness. Yeah. So we call it also conscious access. Uh, or conscious content of consciousness. Uh, so it, it's a more uh, cognitive aspect of the, of the consciousness. Uh, it's very important to, to look at the potential restoration of, of this second level of consciousness, in my opinion, uh, because this is more clinically relevant and useful uh, for patients with disorders of consciousness. So it, and this will... again, Sorry. yes, this again uh, can be... Uh, tricky to measure. Huh? And uh, more and more, uh, it's uh, tools like imaging uh, with tasks like Local Global is not the only one. Many people are working on tasks. Uh, but as Jordi mentioned, also more and more uh, in, within the resting state also, biomarkers within the resting states can make eventually the, the signature uh, and be a, a key role both for diagnosis and developing therapeutics. So measuring consciousness, the level is is not easy. Um, seems I've heard of the zap and zip idea, where you zap with TMS and then you measure some some sort of entropy of the response. Sure, um, sure. This is is, uh... is that is that would that be interesting to do with with your model as well, where you you know have a single DBS stimulus or or something, and then look at the entropy or like the complexity, I think, of the response. And the propagation of the complexity actually uh, across the brain. Now, this is an amazing idea developed uh, by Massimini and Tononi. Uh, uh, they compute specific uh, index for PCI, perturbational complexity uh, index. Uh, PCI is a very good measure uh, for sure. 
uh, actually, the um, the interesting thing with PCI is that uh, the stimulation is uh, is pretty uh, potentially pretty homogeneous across patients uh, and is not uh, relying on the preservation of sensory uh, inputs uh, because by the end in uh, event-related paradigms, this is also what you do, but instead of doing electrical zap, <laughs> uh, you, you will, you will uh, make uh, an auditory paradigm or a visual yeah. paradigm. Uh, however, you need uh, in these patients with head trauma also to check for the integrity of the sensory input, uh, sure. visual input, uh, uh, hearing, uh, auditory input, etc., etc. Uh, I think uh somehow i mean uh, there are, i would say there are two 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 aspects first that uh it's good to have different biomarkers because probably we will converge to this idea of personalized medicine and you know how much uh, uh, brain trauma patients are heterogeneous. They are much more heterogeneous than Parkinson's patients, which already yeah. are heterogeneous. <laughs> uh, so probably, probably you need to multiply the biomarkers. And there is also a strong, strong efforts to do for all of us to bring these biomarkers to the everyday clinical settings. And that's really... That's really something we need to, to work on. And I know, for example, the team of uh, Jacques Ossit and Yonel Nakash and uh, Pitié Salpetrière and uh, ICM, uh, they are actually developing uh, uh, embarkable devices that can eventually run this uh, with EG. Uh, so some tasks with uh, online analysis. Uh, it, it's, it's a general question now huh, when you have a, a uh, hot topic in neuroscience, but only very few coming to the patient. <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. I mean, going towards that, next steps on the way to a clinical trial of this, like developing this into patients. But also, if you had done, in theory, the same thing with humans instead of monkeys, I know not ethically possible, but if you had, and they would be awake, like aroused, you could try to talk to them, right? So you have different means of accessing their consciousness um, just by interacting with them, maybe um, that go beyond the monkey. And um, could an intermediate step, because we do implant CM in epilepsy patients, right? We put electrodes into the central median nucleus and the thalamus in epilepsy patients, sometimes under anesthesia. Could that be an intermediate step where one could say, okay, we try to, of course, with ethical approval and everything, but we try to replicate um, potentially awaking or arousing um, patients during surgery that that go in for epilepsy. I don't know, is that an idea that's feasible or thinkable? Well, <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Huh? I think uh, uh, it depends on uh, what is your uh, what is the idea behind. Uh, because clearly, development of neuromodulation for consciousness restoration is very clearly not only for chronic disorders of consciousness. Uh, yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, Blumenfeld uh, uh, showed that in many papers, and then uh, he's driving. Uh, uh, several preclinical and I think also clinical trials to uh, to to perform neuromodulation DBS 
to to restore consciousness in uh, epilepsy patients. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's absolutely right because some of epileptic patients uh, have, uh, uh, so we're talking of, of course of drug resistant epilepsy and drug resistant epilepsy with, uh, with uh, consciousness alteration. So this is a strong handicap. Huh? And uh, it's, I found it a clever way to address uh, also the, the, the question by uh, uh, taking it on, on the consciousness side more than on the epilepsy side. Although fixing the two uh, problems is of course the holy grail, but still uh, it, it could be that you're ameliorating the everyday life of patients uh, enormously already by by going in the direction of consciousness uh, restoration. And again, I would personally, I would uh, try to apply uh, neuroimaging in these patients then uh, to guide uh, the way we, we conduct, uh, uh, we personalize maybe the settings. Well, you know very well, Andy, I mean, in the uh, uh, movement disorders field, uh, who is probably the most mature application of neuromodulation uh, today, and uh, we know how much uh, it's key to get the right patient, the right spot, the right setting <laughs> at the right moment. So it go extremely toward personalized medicine. And we can, we can guess that this should be even more important in uh, cognitive disorders, psychiatric disorders, disorders yeah. of consciousness. Uh, these are also network, network uh, disease. Uh, consciousness uh, is not related to one center. There is no center of consciousness within the brain. And, and especially the second level of consciousness, we're talking about the, the awareness of the conscious access. Uh, if we take whatever the theory actually, yeah, but it's true that uh, there has been, uh, we are uh, taking the uh, uh, GNW uh, theory framework, let's say, uh, to explain also our results. Uh, in this theory, uh, awareness happens when the sensory information broadcast over several brain areas. Yeah. This is the difference between, say, you're looking at this uh, apple and it's going unconscious, and you're looking at this apple, but it's taking your consciousness at that moment. Spiring up, yeah, yeah. Because this visual input that started in V1, V2, until your prefrontal cortex to parietal cortex, realizing kind of ignition. Uh, this progressing phenomena, this is what makes an information becomes available uh, globally and becoming uh, uh, conscious. So this this is something, it's much easier to, to assess with the functional imaging, for example. Sure. Uh, uh, because you may, of, of course, you're very right to say that with patients, we can have the communication aspect, which can make it easier sometimes, but you can eventually also go into intermediate steps uh, and, uh, and, you, and uh, eventually functional imaging could be very helpful. Are there concrete steps towards clinical translation of your findings at for hospital or at, at the Neurospin? <laughs> Only if you can yes. talk about it, of course. Sure, 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 sure. Um, well, uh, you know, currently uh, in France, there's a big uh, national debate about end of life and uh, 
dignity of end of life and the right of patients to terminate their life if they consider that they are extremely handicapped. So uh, is it really the best period for uh, these patients? I don't know. Uh, I must say that it's true that uh, there are ethical limitations. I mean, uh, we see it already that today it's not easy to take participation to the fMRI it's it's, it's heavy it's uh, uh, it's uh, not really realized routinely apart from very few centers in the world uh, so what about patients with chronic disorders of consciousness like much more challenging ethically yeah, to, to do yeah. uh, such studies and I think we need to keep that in mind I mean uh, uh, it's uh, uh, it's uh, not straightforward to, to to do in these patients what we are doing in the lab settings, with either uh, preclinical models or even healthy volunteers that are generally uh, young students, uh, sure. <laughs> uh, very willing to spend hours in the lab, uh, jumping from fMRI to MEG, from to EEG to HDEG, uh, no matter uh, what happens. Uh, that's clear. Um, so there is an ethic limitation, and, and there is also, I think, a big, big challenge about the selection of patients. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, it took almost 10, 15 years since the early, uh, early days of Grenoble uh, with the STN-DBS to really achieve the, the current international standard of uh, selecting patients uh, based on L-DOPA response, neuropsychological testing, MRI, et cetera, et cetera, even psychiatric evaluation. Uh, it took a while. Uh, and this is a disease supposedly more simple <laughs> than uh, chronic disorder of consciousness, although we know now that uh, it's not that simple with alpha-synucleopathy theory. Um, so this, I think, today we're lacking that. How, how would we select these patients? Uh, because it's not very supportable, in my opinion, to just go again and implant uh, leads uh, and centrotelemic uh, uh, because probably it will not work in all patients, for sure. Sure, for sure. Uh, so, so, so maybe maybe to tie into that, one big limitation of your model or like for translation is that these were again anesthesiized, but then most of your patients, that's not, or all of your patients, that's not what they suffer from, right? So, so that's a big, probably big one difference. It's yeah, a big, it's a big difference. difference. You have yeah. normal structure in these yeah. monkeys, completely massively altered structure and connectome in the in the, yeah. in the patient. That's yeah. very clear, and 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 that we are we're very explicit about it, even in our discussions, uh, etc. I know, but I, I just wanted to open it up again for the for the listeners sure, because this right. is the big big difference here, um, of course, between the model and the reality. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, so for me. Uh, I, I, I hope that, uh, well, I, I think uh, approaches with the connectome analysis with DTI should, of course, be very important uh, in uh, the selection of patients. But still, for me, the ideal, in ideal world, we should have a way to predict the effect of DPS before implanting the electrode. Yeah. Um, would it be possible, uh, you know, now, more and more in neuroscience, uh, you have this emergent technique, which is called focused ultrasound, yeah. uh, that can allow us eventually to do that. So 
many of the listeners know focused ultrasounds through the realization of thalamotomies uh, because of the last years, uh, inside tech company make it more and more popular to perform thalamotomies with uh, high intensity, high density uh, focused ultrasound and to perform yeah. uh, a much more proper thalamotomy than uh, uh, done 40 years ago, of course, with uh, MRI uh, uh, control, etc., etc. But I'm not talking about this at all. Uh, you probably know that focus ultrasound now allow many other things, uh, allow to open brain blood barrier, for example, yeah. but allow also to perform neuromodulation, actually, yeah. reversible neuromodulation. Uh, so for me, it is a very interesting uh, uh, pathway, potentially, uh, to to uh, that we need probably to... Uh, first uh, study in the lab setting and even in preclinical models eventually uh, how could we could we really predict the effect of dbs with completely uh, deep uh, focus ultrasound neuromodulation uh, that would be fantastic because that that See. could save a lot of patients from uh, useless implantations which or ethical situation like this one would be, in my opinion, very important. So you're saying with one or two transducers, low intensity focused ultrasound tries to also, you know, mimic the DBS effect by going deep and inducing action potentials or modulating the activity deep there. Um, so, and you would say this is a great idea to probe. Will this have an effect? And then, if it does, you could have a temporary, uh, a permanent effect with the DBS electrode. That's that's the model you're you're proposing. I really like that. That that's a great idea. And I mean, even with the inside tech machine, I think you can also with you know lower the intensity and, and um, modulate and then have really good precision in the MRI to do it. So yes. it's a it's a it's a great um, great proposal there. Yeah, even also for anything we do in DBS, right? Even in you know psychiatric disorders and um, to probe it before we do the actual surgery is, is a really important avenue for the field but i mean for that we have to show that we can predict the effect first right so maybe even something like tremor could be a good model where you could really you know um see it first and, and there we already i think we already know that we can test modulate or um, i know some yeah. some groups already started doing that with tremor so yeah. studying more thoroughly the effect of revolution with the inside tech machine at sub-threshold uh, level of yeah. uh, focus ultrasound. Uh, so th there will be papers in the upcoming uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, periods. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, uh, we, we about it. We routinely do it in like before burning the hole. I think um, also here in the hospital, of course, we we would always have a you know test um, sonication. I, I sometimes wonder though, because we rarely stop then, right? We would usually then burn the hole. So I sometimes wonder, is it is the first sonication really just a test? Is no neuron really dying there? Or is it already, you know, that finding that threshold is um also gonna be important, of course. Um but that's that's really, really helpful. So we we touched upon epilepsy and we can maybe go into that again a little bit more, but maybe before that, an odd question, but I'm sure people have asked you this before. If we think of your model modulating the connectome somehow with the global workspace and everything you could do 
maybe at some point the same with a multifocal non-invasive idea from outside and you could maybe even reverse it and you know do the the opposite um and with that maybe have a form of anesthesia non-invasively is that something you you think about like to to essentially <laughs> put people into sleep with uh, neuromodulation right thank you for releasing some uh, ideas that we are about to test in the future but uh, <laughs> i 100% agree with you <laughs> great 100% agree with you and uh, you know because you're you're making this point uh I mean, we are working on consciousness and its reversal and its induction with anesthetic agents, its reversal, DBS, etc. And very clearly, I mean, you can say, will, will anesthesia be the same in 10, 20 years than today? Not sure. Because sure. when you think about it, uh, I, I always uh, joke with uh, my very good friends and colleagues, uh, anesthesiologists, I say, well, uh, anesthesiology have uh, this uh, very unique particularity is that most of the training during residency is about combating, fighting against the side effects of the drug. Mm, sure. <laughs> so so uh, most of the training is about how to, uh, to handle with the uh, circulation effect, the heart effect, the lung effect, the respiratory effects. Uh, and of course, this is very technically sometimes challenging and it's very important and it's very for the safety of patients. It's uh, it's incredible. I mean, the safety of anesthesia increased a lot over the last uh, decades. But uh, by the end of the day, uh, anesthesia is about suppressing consciousness. So, so the ultimate goal should be how can I induce loss of consciousness without these side effects? and concentrate myself on monitoring consciousness, monitoring depth of anesthesia. This is also something we don't uh, talk about it much, but as one of potential consequences of, of this research also is to, to improve and develop monitoring of consciousness during anesthesia, which of course will correspond to, to, to millions or billions of people, uh, much more than the disorders of consciousness in terms of number of, of people. Uh, but for sure, I, I really hope that one day we can go to that direction, that neuromodulation, non-invasive, of course, neuromodulation, could even uh, do the opposite and uh, go for a safe loss of consciousness, safe and reversible loss of consciousness, maybe, maybe hopefully, without the uh, side effects of the drug, the uh, uh, cardiac, the lung uh, side effects and the circulatory uh, side effects, absolutely. Yeah. And the, the beauty could be the, the closed loop um, component of it where you can measure and induce and uh, like really titrate the exact level one day, maybe in the future um, of, of consciousness. And, and that brings me to, to you, um, and that, you know, um, maybe moving a bit to your medical practice as a neurosurgeon um, specialized in DBS for movement disorders. Um, you're also involved, I think, in the Neuropedis project led by David Linden with other European centers as well as Toronto and Turkey. Um, and there, I think, neurofeedback plays a big role in the in the way you um, do DBS. Could you give us an overview about that? Yes, sure. This is a fantastic project led by uh, 
an incredible uh, person, David Lindon, who is uh, really amazing uh, uh, in the neurofeedback field. Uh, the idea is that, uh, well, neurofeedback is the way to project to the patient his own uh, brain activity somehow and, and uh, try to uh, let him to influence that so that he could, for example, in the, uh, reduce uh, beta oscillation eventually or uh, uh, reduce the propagation of beta oscillation in the basal ganglia and the cortex, etc., uh, etc. Et and the idea of David is uh, to uh, is that uh, neurofeedback, who is more and more providing evidence in diseases, uh, psychiatric diseases of uh, efficiency, actually, could eventually uh, enhance condition of Parkinsonian patients with an, or without DBS, huh? but, uh, but including with DBS. Huh? Uh, I, I found it very interesting. I found it also very interesting because it enhanced uh, and regroup uh, many groups that are interested in combining imaging and DBS. So it's also a way to promote that field, which is evolving slowly, by the way, for, for different reasons. Uh, so, um, of course, ultimately, uh, fMRI-based uh, DBS is not very easy to, uh, neurofeedback uh, is not very easy to, to perform unless manufacturers would help to, uh, to add applications within uh, their scanners. Why not? Uh, another application could come also eventually from the fact that we are more and more now uh, with the new uh, technologies, of, for example, the perceptor stimulator electronic and others, probably in the future, read the, the activity and uh, and eventually project it to patients uh, to try to have them influencing that uh, that activity. Uh, will, would that really uh, improve the effect of DBS? Why not? Well, but uh, it's uh, it's pretty fascinating, actually. Really cool. So, so you think there is a role for um, neurofeedback um, in these closed loop stimulation techniques? Could, could you draw a picture of how that could work in the future? So, uh, again, I think uh, during the clean the research development, uh, currently it's based on, on fMRI. Uh, so mm -hmm. patient could go uh, to the scanner. Uh, fMRI needs to, to say, where, what will we project? What kind of brain activity will we project? So, so that's one of the question, unsolved questions that we try to solve yeah. during this project, by the way. Uh, probably not the STN activity because already the artifact of the electrode is not uh, helping. Uh, and again, I, I believe many, many evidence now show that cortical effects are so strong in DBS uh, that they can be per se the target of neurofeedback. Yeah. Uh, so could it be uh, just projecting the activity of one of these premotor areas to the patient, asking him to reduce it and having even a carryover effect? Or could we, uh, uh, I'm actually trying to, to push to, to use the methods we use in our consciousness studies. So these dynamic resting state analysis, yeah. uh, which is uh, uh, seducing somehow, uh, could it be also a way to, uh, to, to, to perform neurofeedback? Uh, this will still take some few years, but sure. again, uh, I, I, I believe it, it, can, it can only help. Huh? And in the study, we have also uh, representative patients 
I find it more and more interesting in clinical trials to involve representative of patients. So they can attend even, uh, even scientific meetings we had. And uh, I must say that it's really very, very good experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they are the experts, right, in many ways. So so I I, I totally agree with you. Um, Involving patients, even as co-authors on papers or, you know, in in, um, is is really important. Um, Of course, not every patient would be interested, uh, I think, but um, but some would be and and they are really valuable as, as, as partners in science. I I couldn't agree more. So um, new large instruments like the telescope have advanced science and the Neurospin Center um, has now this uh, new MRI scanner at the EasyOld, I think, um, an 11.72 Tesla MRI. Um, which novel discoveries do you expect there? And also, is there any application for your work in DBS, maybe even clinical cases or um, better targeting Hi. Any thoughts on that end? Yeah, thank you for bringing that, Andy. So, Isolt is a fascinating project. It's it's a, it's a European project. It's a, it was built between Germany and France. It was even mm-hmm. co-signed by uh, Chirac and Schroeder. <laughs> oh, wow, a long time ago. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it took a while, and and it came in. It's it's uh, uh, and uh, of course when I heard first time Isolt, I said, where is Tristan? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was very, very well uh, chosen. Tristan uh, uh, Isolt is an amazing opera of Wagner, by the way. Yeah. And Isolt was a very, very well chosen uh, uh, nickname for this uh, Franco-German European uh, project. So the magnet is here. It's running. Uh, there were images uh, from post-mortem brain, uh, some preclinical images. I can't say more because it's still ongoing. And uh, I must say that uh, it's uh, uh, we are very lucky because the regulation agency very recently approved approved the fact that human beings could go into this magnet. Uh, we were afraid that it would have taken more time, but the evidence of safety was enough. Uh, was accepted. So probably next fall, the very first humans will go to this very first time, uh, uh, such a high field. But then again, uh, it's it's big science. It's an interesting. It's also uh, uh, for the physicist. Uh, it's amazing, you know. Like uh, between both uh, Germany and France, they already released, I don't know how many patents already, how many discoveries in physics uh, just by building up this uh, magnet. Uh, so, so, so that's already great. Now, what about neuroscience and what about even clinical neuroscience? Uh, this we need to see because uh, I, would, I would ask you how many, uh, for example, uh, examples where the 70 bring something that the 3T doesn't uh, make actually. Today, on the clinical side, only there's only one recommendation for drug-resistant epilepsy for the 7 Tesla as a clinical routine uh, examination. It doesn't mean that I don't believe in ultra-high field. Otherwise, I wouldn't yeah, have yeah. been a neurospin, <laughs> of course. You mean the central vein sign? That. You, you were talking about the... Oh, I'm sorry, that was MS. So you, you, what's the recommendation, the clinical recommendation for epilepsy? I think that uh, for to evaluate patients before uh, going for neurosurgery for drug-resistant epilepsy now, if you don't see any abnormality within the image of three Tesla, 
then there's a clear recommendation to make seven Tesla uh, scan because you can still see lesions that are not yeah. seen at three Tesla. But it's I think it's the unique example so far when you have clear uh, recommendation for seven Tesla. Uh, what would come with eleven point seven Tesla? One of my personal uh, <laughs> guess, uh, I hope at least, is uh, Parkinson's biomarkers. Uh, to to be able to directly see the neurodegeneration, the neurodegeneration uh, with imaging. Uh, you know that at 3T, we don't see uh, neurodegeneration. At 7T, there are already significant work uh, in South Korea and Italy with Mitsubishi, some other uh, groups in the world that starts to see abnormality within the nigra, disappearance of nigrosome 1 signal, etc. But we, we really would like to, to go and have clear evaluation, uh, uh, see, for example, Parkinson's in these very, very early stages. Uh, because for me, the future for Parkinson's disease, uh, I, I would be provocative. It's, uh, it's not DBS, it's not HIFU, it's really curing the disease. This is sure. what we should go for. So uh, you're right. I hope. <laughs> I hope one day my daughters would say, well, my father implanted leads in DD patient. That was history. Now yeah. his disease disappeared. What this a crude what a crude <laughs> measure to, to do that, right? To put electrodes in the brain. I, I exactly yeah, I, I hope that too. And I, I, I think for Parkinson's there's great hope. I I could imagine for some, you know, there will potentially even if we could cure Parkinson's or, you know, a, a large proportion of it or so. Um, there could probably still be indications that come up, right? Like epilepsy, like uh, um, psychiatric disorders. So so you you will probably, until you retire, have a job, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> we'll see. So, Depending hopefully. on age of retirement, uh, which is increasing progressively. <laughs> sure, I heard about that. Makes Good sense. Point. So, but, but since we're talking about um, cure and we, we mentioned the better resolution um, with the nigrosome one um, story. I think that's a really fascinating um, uh, story as well, of, you know, detecting Parkinson's better. Uh, you also, and you mentioned it in the beginning, you co-invented a specific gene therapy for Parkinson's disease, which also went into clinical trials or practice. Um, yes. can, can you tell us a bit more about that? I'm absolutely not an expert on it, but would love to hear more. Well, so this is uh, this actually was the work of my PhD under the supervision of uh, Stefan Pelfi and in uh, an amazing collaboration with uh, Oxford Biomedica, uh, Biotech in UK. Uh, actually, the idea there was to uh, administer, to restore dopaminergic uh, stimulation in a continuous way and not in pulsatile way. And we know that uh, levodopa is still the main treatment of Parkinson's disease with agonists, of course, but uh, the pulsatile stimulation is uh, uh, is really not the best way to administer to restore dopaminergic uh, tone, uh, and you end up having fluctuations, dyskinesia. Uh, so the hypothesis was there was to to administer continuously dopamine, and second to do it also locally because we know that. Uh, psychological side effects or psychiatric side effects emerge sometimes from the stimulation of dopaminergic receptors uh, that are, for example, in lambic part within the striatum or, or other dopaminergic receptors. So being local and continuous was really the aim there. 
and uh, gene therapy is very well suited for that. So, so, so uh, this was a really very nice period uh, uh, of my life uh, when uh, you go uh, to completely new, uh, <laughs> new thing uh, where DBS was already the main uh, uh, innovation in Parkinson's. Uh, and it worked pretty well in in in, uh, in PTP uh, uh, models uh, and human primates. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to participate also in the phase one two clinical trial uh, as a young uh, uh, neurosurgeon, uh, chef de clinique. And uh, I remember very well the first patient who uh, just came in after two months with this picture. I play golf again. It's it's really oh uh, wow yes you know I call him our Neil Armstrong he's the first guy he he was brave enough to accept to be the first to have a gene modifying uh, uh, vector which uh, make you uh, a GM forever basically it's not reversible like DBS uh, and, uh, and 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 that these are really rare moments we always uh, uh, always uh, we never forget basically. Uh, now, uh, other formulations of the vector uh, was uh, were uh, performed by Oxford Biomedica. So, uh, so then again, it goes to uh, phase one two uh, clinical trial. Uh, I think it's really a very important and very interesting uh, area of research for the future because eventually it could even be combined with DBS. Huh? Uh, so uh, there's no no contradiction there. Um, and, and contrary to cell therapy, uh, you don't rely on uh, reconnections. Uh, cell therapy is really very challenging uh, because yeah. first, uh, it's not just about grafting cells. You need also to make uh, the connection, the connectivity. And connectivity sure. is very hard to do. And second, we know that cells that are grafted can still be uh, receiving the uh, alpha-synucleopathy, and uh, several cases uh, published showed that grafted cells could die from the remaining alpha-synucleopathy uh, phenomena. We know very well now that Parkinson's disease uh, is an alpha-synucleopathy with this prion-like propagation of uh, misfolded alpha-synuclein. So the disease is there. Uh, so I, I found it very interesting, and I hope that in the future, gene therapy will go also to combat alpha-synuclein. Uh, so uh, uh, to, to achieve real neuroprotection and not only symptomatic treatment, uh, but this requires also the very early diagnosis. For me, neuroprotection is something that goes on two legs. Uh, first, very early diagnosis, yeah. and simultaneous administration of neuroprotective agents. And uh, one without the other, it doesn't work, basically. Uh, because at the time of diagnosis, it's already, you, clinical diagnosis, it's usually already too too late, you say? No. It is. It is. Mm. It has been demonstrated, like uh, Jeffrey Cordover from Chicago, who spent all his career on developing neuroprotection with his famous paper, the science paper on GDNF in MPTP macaques, yeah. Uh, he wrote several papers on it. I mean, all clinical translation of this fantastic work failed, unfortunately. Growth factors never work, even with gene therapy. And one strong reason is that we are still diagnosing too late the disease. Mm. And he shows that even two, three years after diagnosis, 
most of the Niagara almost is gone. So it's, it's always very late. Now yeah. there are hope. There are hope uh, on two sides. There are hopes from, because two, two very recent papers uh, showed that we can, that the, we can really screen and test alpha-synucleic neuropathy either in CSF and even last week, another paper in the serum, SERA, nature medicine paper uh, from the Japanese and Luxembourg group. Uh, this is a tremendous hope to, to, to have a biological biomarker. And yeah. I believe that imaging at ultra high field would complete that very nicely to really show the uh, connectome uh, variation. Uh, you, it might be that one day we will screen uh, in the SERA, because it's easier than CSF, of course, uh, for alpha-synucleopathy, and select those who will go to ultra-high field imaging. Mm -hmm. And then you could intervene before even any symptoms happen there. Yeah. Uh, while today, this situation is only possible when you are in a family with a genetic uh, dominant uh, uh, disease. And sure. then, then we can start hoping that in a decade or so, uh, we may uh, treat Parkinson's before any symptom appears. That, yeah. That's for me uh, the big the next big thing. It's a very, very, very interesting point. I, I just finished a collaboration with David Charles and uh, Mallory Hacker on this um, very early DBS. They had a study, I think, a while back um, that you're probably familiar with, where they implanted the DBS electrodes, you know, at the time of diagnosis, essentially. So with, you know, very early um uh on onset uh, on the disease it was still of course diagnosed so you know later than what you dream of but um i talked to david charles and, and he he said the same thing that he would at some point even you know if if we can show dbs as a potentially disease modifying or like slowing the motor progression effect to potentially at some point implant before symptoms start if we can screen for it better so same idea he also mentioned the um uh, that you know, usually it's too late for any disease-modifying um, thing. So, so do you see future of DBS to people that haven't even you know have motor symptoms yet, or would you say that's too invasive, um, and 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 we would need uh, you know other other agents to modify the disease? I. Uh... Well, I, I really believe in, I mean, I'm data-driven, basically. So I, I believe in, in what science will really yeah. prove. Any disease-modifying uh, aspect or therapy, uh, and the most effective one uh, would, would be then uh, the, the one that I would adopt, huh? and I'm sure. participating in this effort. <laughs> Sounds good. And in general, future of... Um... We, we have talked a bit about the future of gene therapy uh, that that you you were talking about in high field but future of neuromodulation as a whole what do you see as next steps that we could um, pursue so uh, I think uh, the future of neuromodulation we will I I think we would benefit more and more from all what is developed in the labs, basically. So massively imaging, right. recordings, translating what is what already exists, actually. So uh, let me tell you, for example, a paper I liked much, uh, nature medicine paper about uh, depression uh, by the, the team of Eddie Chong and Philip Starr. Yeah, in, uh, paper, yeah. 
exactly uh, showing that we are treating a network disease, so we should record everywhere in the network and do personalized medicine. And we ended up implanting this lady in that nucleus or campus or in that. I mean, there's no single target for sure. Um, then the challenge with that is that it's not, it's, it's uh, pretty invasive. Huh? We cannot imagine to generalize this approach to all patients. It, it's a beautiful paper. I think it's showing the pathway, but we need to do it in a non-invasive way. Uh, can we replace the recording with fMRI? Can we uh, replace the stimulation by focused ultrasound? Uh, if we can achieve that, then we do the same approach non-invasively, then you win. And mm. it may be, if in the meanwhile we achieve to cure Parkinson's, it may be that the, the, the field will be uh, dominated by cognitive and psychiatric uh, diseases with this kind of uh, highly predictive approaches, including, of course, AI, yeah? because uh, AI will, play, uh, will, will, will probably play a big role in, in the selection of these targets with these yeah. massive uh, parallel data that will be uh, recorded. Sounds great. I love the avenue. It's a clear path. We just have to follow it and... Uh, and uh... To our best. Um, so to wrap up, I want to be mindful of your time, but some some rapid fire questions that that I usually um, include in the end. Um, how um, does uh, the, the 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 surgical theater look like in the future? Would you would you like um, if you could design one um, for let's say your son or your 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 daughters um, becoming <laughs> neurosurgeons? What would they have? Is, does it look the same or? Which equipment would you want? Um... I, I I hope that uh, it uh, there will be less and less differences between the OR and the lab. Let's say. Uh, yeah. I, by saying so, I'm not saying that uh, ethically we can do whatever we want in the yeah. OR, of course. Huh? But I mean that all the strong development, the technological development, the analysis tools that that are already existing in the lab and are going even faster and faster, goes very, very uh, translationally fast to, to the OR. And, and uh, instead of taking 10, 20 years uh, of delay, and that's our responsibility, Andy, I think. I mean, we have a, a foot here and a foot here. Uh, it's somehow our responsibility to try to, to push for this quick translation from yeah. the two worlds. I just interviewed Mark Richardson and he mentioned that his mentor Phil Starr had taught him lucky neurosurgeons are the ones that made the OR, the lab. And uh, so he tried tried that as well. So so I, I, I agree that you, there's so much that can be done in in the OR to do science, but the other way around, of course, as, as well to translate scientific tools into clinical practice um, to help uh, be better and so on. Great. Any eureka moments um, that you had in your life where you thought, ah, oh, this is, uh, now I understand oh. this, or this was a great success? Or... Uh, good uh, question. Uh, I remember very well, uh, actually, when I was working on gene therapy during my PhD, uh, the very first animal uh, in which we injected the new viral vector and uh, I was following him uh, directly myself. 
And I remember it was like two weeks after coming back from the weekend. And wow, is he the animal that I saw two weeks ago? And he was completely oh, wow. transformed. He was getting and jumping everywhere, uh, but, uh, looking much more healthy and not Parkinsonian anymore. And, and, and that's, that's really something you feel, wow. I'm, of course, I'm, I'm yeah. Wow. Something amazing here. Uh, then I would say also uh, later on uh, when we uh, we could uh, do all these uh, experiments with Jordi with Lean combining uh, the fMRI, the EG, uh, then even the DPS on top of it, and seeing everything working and have these fMRI maps going uh, out of it. Uh, yes, I, I felt happy because. It was exactly what I was uh, looking after when I was in Martinez and saying, I will be back to France and I would like to do this and this and this and this. Uh, so, yes. Great. And, and it really sounds like a Eureka story when, you know, especially just the monkey waking up and, and you know, or being aroused and everything you put together there. Amazing um, how it all came together. It's really a, a very unique paper just in terms of the depth you've um, put on both of you. Um, and uh, any time, like, I'm sure, but did you ever think this was a waste of my time? Never. Never? No. Okay, that's <laughs> why. <laughs> because it's always worth it, any experiment you do. Or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. We learn from everything we do. Huh? I, I, and yes, I and then, wouldn't say that. Be, be, you know, because I just want to include also, let's say, the failures a bit, because we always speak about success in these podcasts. So, any time where you thought that this was didn't go well or that you would were, would be happy to share or oh many times many times but i uh uh i don't know if it is personal optimism i mean every every time there was a failure uh well i i had uh, two reaction uh first say all right i'm sure there's a way to make it working. So keep going. The, the show, the show must go on. Show must go on. The show must go on. Love it. Uh, all right. It's uh, terrific. And sometimes if you have a big failure, if you lose uh, part of your experiment, your setup, if it is not working at all, if you crash a machine, I mean, uh, all of us had something like that. Uh, all right. Uh, and then later on, when I mounted my own lab and my, my group, then uh, my second reaction was, Stay strong in front of your guys, <laughs> of your students, of your uh, postdocs. Stay strong. I mean, if you yourself feel like, uh, uh, so yeah. what do they feel? No, 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 guys, you cannot. I, I, I cannot. <laughs> so, <laughs> Love it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Okay, great. Um, advice for young research, re researchers entering the field, either in neuroscience or also neurosurgery. Any tips you would give? Yes, I, I I would give the same the same the same advice. Uh, I would tell this is your century. This is your century. This is your time. I mean, we we are in a momentum uh, in neuroscience. Uh, profit uh, from this extraordinary development of, of neuroscience, uh, I would say be transversal, really be transversal, uh, take risks, don't stay, uh, move from your comfort zone. I mean, you are too too young to, to have a comfort zone. <laughs> Maybe there's never a comfort zone. So uh, take, take risks, 
and and uh, believing in your ideas. Uh, so uh, yes, I would say that. I would say that uh, the brain is uh, is a multi-scale, uh, uh, complex uh, object or uh, uh, product of evolution. Uh, so yes, uh, great if time you are to, yeah. in one scale, sometimes you can move to another scale. You can study single cells, and then you want to do a fMRI, and then uh, you go to clinics, and you you, you are uh, happy with preclinical models. Uh, but yes, do that, do that, and uh, share with uh, with other people. Sounds great. We did talk about the future of the field, but right now, would you think we have missed opportunities, like things we should be doing, but the field is somehow not doing right? Mm. Um, I, I have the, the, the impression, uh, I'm biased, huh? That we are underusing uh, imaging and MRI. I mean, <laughs> you know that very well, uh, and would even say fMRI also. Yeah. Uh, so I have the. I mean, I feel bad sometimes when I jump from neurospin to the hospital. I say it's incredible. I mean, you have all this here in the research uh, setting. And the clinic, uh, we are still uh, looking by the eye on uh, this structure and this structure. And uh, fMRI is uh, not obvious to perform in radiology departments. I think we, we gain to have more uh, PhDs and engineers in the clinical departments. Uh, something I saw in Martinez Center, uh, in the US in radiology department, there are more PhDs and engineers, at least in France, I can generalize to, to Europe, but radiology departments and clinical departments uh, are 100% about caregivers, uh, yeah. radiologists, technicians, uh, which limits a lot completely the expansion of advanced technology, advanced analysis. So, yeah. so either the manufacturers like Siemens, Philips, uh, Toshiba, etc., I have no... No conflict of interest. I'm just citing uh, yeah. some firms. Uh, either they end up developing uh, a ready-to-use uh, device, like for example, uh, roughly language area, so that the neurosurgeon uh, will be very attentive uh, when he's uh, removing his uh, tumor, or nothing happens. Or, or sometimes you have an impressive radiologist who is uh, really uh, interested uh, uh, in this and this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but generally feels isolated if there's a lack of environment. So, yes, yeah. for me, for me, I think we are missing something uh, because of that. So, moving more PhDs into the hospitals, I, I, I really agree with you. In Germany, it's the same thing. Big missed opportunity if you compare it to the US, because here we have a lot of PhD PIs even in the medical system. And I think especially on the PI level, I think in Germany, we, of course, have some PhD students there, um, but they are not the drivers that lead to actual change. You need to find positions for long term for people in the medical system that are not MDs sometimes just to, you know, um, add in some creativity and technology from the outside. I, I totally agree. Despite being a big proponent of the, you know, clinician researcher, model i think it's great to do both um I, i currently don't but but i still think it's a great idea but i also think it's a great idea to include non-medical personnel long-term give them long-term perspectives in close to the hospitals or in the medical system the us does a great job 
Exactly, with real careers, they can become yeah. professor, etc. Uh, I totally agree. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Great. Interesting. Um, is there anything we should have talked about um, that I didn't ask, but that you would have liked to cover? I know this was long, but wow. <laughs> Did we cover everything? Or <laughs> So then with that, I want to thank you one more time uh, very much for your time. Uh, I promised we would go one and a half hours. We're a bit over time. I'm sorry about that. But um, thank you for your time. This, this was really an amazing uh, conversation. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you.